2: before we get started a quick word from our friends at squarespace squarespace is going to help you make the website of your dreams you're going to make your next move on the internet so easily with squarespace go to squarespace.com start a free trial and enter the code longform at checkout you'll get 10 percent off your first purchase here is our show hello welcome to the Longform podcast I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host, Aaron Lammer. What's up, man?
3: I don't know where Evan is. Don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> He's vanished. Uh, who's up? Oh, we got a this is a this is a doozy we got on. This I feel like you just missed my uh, Evan Ratliff deep cut there. Yeah, yeah, I, I saw you. <laughs> I say that's the name of his story. Uh, a great
2: story. You should go read it. Vanished by Evan Ratliff. Uh, this week on the show, Ezra Edelman. Yeah, the director of OJ Made in America the five-part, nearly eight-hour ESPN documentary uh, that was just days before we talked nominated for an Oscar. Hey, congratulations to him. We've had, uh, I think, a couple people who have done some filmmaking, but this is our first pure filmmaker on the show, which I'm excited about.
3: Well, this is, I mean, for people who've seen uh, the O.J. documentary, it's one of the most research-heavy and archival-heavy Documentaries I've ever seen It's almost all archival Like other than interviews. And there's no narrator And there's no narrator So the journalistic burden That, that uh, it may have uh, landed on The person making this movie Is enormous
2: Yes uh, As you will hear in this episode It was enormous And Ezra had uh, a team of people Working with him But they did it quickly man They did it in two years And uh, it's just I know you don't like it When we heap praise in these intros I don't like it I'm just going to say it.
3: It's a good movie man freaking movie. As always, we are brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp makes it easy to send email to the people who are part of your world. Here is Max with Ezra Edelman.
1: Hello, Ezra Edelman. Hello, Max. What is up? I'm, I'm impressed by all the pictures of Larry Bird you have in your office. <laughs> is that
2: your doing? Uh, it is, well, it's like half my doing. Uh, another person who works in this office
1: bears a striking
2: resemblance to Larry
1: Bird. Oh, so it's not out of respect for his game.
2: For me, it is. I okay. grew up in Boston, and I am like a Celtics fan. Um, you uh, you did a doc on Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Mm-hmm. Does that stuff like stay with you for a long time?
1: Of course. How does it not? I mean, I will say that the... There have been few more interesting experiences and intimidating experiences in my life than sitting across from Larry Bird, yeah, what's he like? First of all, he's enormous, I mean he's a huge man, and um there was a level of the intrigue of interviewing someone that you understood had zero interest in being interviewed <laughs> and zero interest in being a part of a movie uh that you were making uh and had made very few concessions in terms of what he would allow, so you know that you have this finite amount of time to talk to someone that is, um, by reputation, very averse and very um, uninterested, if not disinterested, in doing interviews and in talking in general, publicly, and yet you know you're making a movie that relies on his talking to you. Did and you, there was a very real chance that he would just listen to me and go, like, nope, not answering that. <laughs> nope, not answering that. And so there was, I think my, my heart was pumping extremely fast over the course of the two hours and ten minutes that interview took place.
2: I know almost nothing about how interviewing for documentaries works. And, like, I assume that an interview like that with Larry Bird is, like, super negotiated.
1: Yeah, but not through anyone. It was more like he didn't negotiate anything about anything. It was like, you can't do anything, but I'll do a two-hour interview. Why did he even agree to do a two-hour interview? Um, truth be told, I'm guessing that the way the project came to be was more th- on the other end, through Magic and through Lon Rosen, who's Magic's agent, and through HBO, and I think that like this was the story that we were doing, which is about the two of them, and it wasn't gonna get done unless he participated, so I think he did it out of respect and out of, a, out of true love for Magic. Not because he was interested in being a part of it. And you had like one two hour session, and that was it. You got one shot.
2: That sounds uh, hard, slightly terrifying. Uh,
1: It's both, um, but it's also what makes me enjoy what I do. I mean, there's a level of, I think, any interview I do with people is always for me like preparing for an exam Mm -hmm. in terms of um, thinking out uh, what you need, what you want to ask, what you hope to get. Being so studied and fluid um, in the things you want to talk about, so you're not sitting there going, similar to if you're having a conversation, doing a podcast, not sitting there with a bunch of questions in my head. Right. Or Sorry, like on a piece of paper, looking at it. Now, so you were born on December, 7, you know. But it, part of what's different about it than, like, say, doing a podcast is
2: like there are specific things you need him to talk about, right?
1: Right, and so, but where I think in that exercise specifically what made that easier was when I did it, which was essentially he was the last interview I did for that film, or I think the second to last. And so in some ways I've built through the course of having done all the interviews leading up to that point, I've already built a structure and uh, for what I'm doing as far as the story I'm telling. So in some ways I have a more disciplined approach because I know where I need to plug him in in the story, so it's not like I have an open-ended thing like Larry Bird's the first person I'm interviewing him for this film that I haven't, you know, sort of completely focused. Right, and if so, that would be a non-starter. I'd be like, I don't. I would still have a plan. I would still know the moments, but there are specific things where in your head you already know what other people have said. You already have scenes in some ways built in your head, and you kind of know where because a lot of that interview, like that with him, in that two-hour time frame, is you are constantly in real time going. Did he give me enough for this thing? Okay, I'm going to move on now. Right. Like, and you have to decide what are those moments, what's needed, and did he just give you something that is usable and interesting? And if he did, I can't belabor this.
2: How important is it for you to, in that moment, or like in general in these things, like to develop some rapport with someone? Because, like, you're never in these interviews.
1: You, you, oh, oh rarely. Yeah, rarely. You edit yourself out yeah, for the yeah, most part. Yeah, I yeah. think there's like... I in, mean, you know, in, OJ, in OJ, I was in a few more because there's no narrator in the film and I understood that my voice sometimes would need to be used as connective tissue and or to emphasize the point. But
2: And there were a couple of moments where it seemed like you're there, but your voice is kind of faint and in the background. It's yeah, I, not, I
1: certainly don't... I purposely don't wear a microphone. I don't want to be a presence. I want to be off mic.
2: So how important is it in an interview like that with Larry Bird, or really any of these, were there some specific things you know you need to get that you develop a rapport with that person so they open up, or is it like, I I guess my question is kind of like, how mercenary is it?
1: Well, in general, I mean, there's multiple ways of doing it in terms of when you're making a film, you're always cultivating relationships, you're calling people up, and you're, you know, and frankly, sometimes I've worked with people, and it's very helpful to have a producer who has those relationships and develops some sort of rapport outside of me personally but you know on behalf of the project
2: because that allows you to let ask
1: tough questions yeah it allows me to have a little bit of distance and allows me to and so that that's sort of you know and with him especially you're doing an interview with somebody that you never met before and I can empathize by the way on the other end I don't like talking about myself and you're thanks being, so much for coming on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in the case of him I'm doing an interview where I know that I'm going to have to ask him about his father committing suicide. And he doesn't know me from a hole in the wall and he doesn't talk about this thing publicly. I don't know that he ever had. And so for me, there's like a, I'm not messing around with you. I'm gonna do this interview, you understand what I'm doing, and I'm gonna do it chronologically. So there's no surprises, I'm gonna lead you up to that point. I remember this so vividly, like literally we got up to the point of almost the end of the first tape and I was about at this point, I'm like, oh fuck man, I- we have to change tapes and then like, but he knows what's coming. And so in that moment you're like, how am I gonna do this in as respectful of a way if possible and I have no idea how he's gonna respond to you, to me. And like, you know, you don't know the alchemy that um, begets responses from anybody or begets someone sitting and engaging with you. Um, And so that he sat and engaged the way he did and in a real way, which is, it's not like he talked a lot he was true to who he was, but he answered my questions. And how'd you
2: How'd you ask that one about his dad?
1: I don't remember. I, I mean, what I remember is the the palpable nervousness that led up to that moment. There is a moment, though, within the first ten minutes of the interview, where I was talking about like his childhood and his brothers, and you know, he's talking about you know them messing around and like when his brother beating him up. You know, like it's like it was like he actually went beyond what he had to do he talked he told an anecdote and i was like okay i think we're gonna be okay (laughs) but it was really like it was that nerve you're like i don't know what's gonna happen and so and in the end all those and this is what happens with me you do an interview and like immediately like i don't know what just happened like Like, i don't know like you walk out of it like walking i'm like i don't i'm literally by the way after it was done he got up and i said you know i'm always like wanting more and i said i had this idea of how i wanted to open the film and there is that movie, I don't even remember it, the the straight story? Is that what it's called? I don't know. With um, Richard Farnsworth who was an old guy in Indiana. Okay. And he would drive around on like a lawnmower tractor.
2: Is that really, I can picture Larry Bird driving around so Indiana on a tractor. He
1: actually cuts, he has a house where he has this huge lawn and yeah. he actually cuts his lawn. And there's a famous story about people in Boston looking at him cutting his lawn. Like there was like there was Larry Bird cutting his lawn because that's his whole thing, his work ethic like he, who, that's who he is, he would Larry cut Joe it, Bird he would cut his own grass and so I was like, I had this, for me this great idea of like, okay, I want to open the film with Magic being out in LA being at events being Magic Johnson, talking schmoozing, laughing, patting people on the back being the life of the party and it's going to be intercut with Larry Bird on his tractor <laughs> cutting his lawn and after the interview, like he gets up and he's just like he's out. Like, and we're in the bottom of it, uh, the field Fieldhouse or whatever the Indiana Arena is. We, he didn't go far. Uh, and uh, it's actually kind of like nice basketball arena. It is a nice basketball, it's like this. You know, it's there's this homage to professional basketball. It's yeah. it's the it's the birthplace of, of basketball. And I just remember walking with him towards the elevator, being like, "So, you know, I was there's this thing I want to do. Is there any?" He's just like, "I don't want to do that." <laughs> and I like said he's like sorry I'm not going to do that and he's like thank you very much and it just like well it was, he actually was pretty respectful but was just like I'm not that's havin- definitely
2: not having I'm that. not I'm not having that
1: <laughs> and so like in the end I just remember that night talking with uh, our DP who shot the interview and him just talking about the way Larry was in the interview and he was just sort of like kept saying like I don't know I don't know. Or whatever the tick was that he... And so there's the feeling of, I don't know what just happened. And yeah. so you go back and then you watch this interview and this is where it's different writing a book or versus making a film. He said enough, but he said it even more in what he didn't say on his face. And so when you're watching this and you're watching his face, like, it's real. Mm-hmm. And he said everything he needed to do and he was totally true to his character and his being. And that was the appropriate juxtaposition to who that other protagonist was but you're
2: saying you couldn't in the moment you couldn't see that in the moment
1: no because i can't parse facial expressions especially my mind's working so fast trying to keep the conversation going yeah and sometimes when he would respond by with a look or a face or in four words but with an expression i'm only concentrating on what the words are that are coming out of his mouth right and the expressions sometimes maybe have to do with him looking at me and so i'm like oh i'm on the <laughs> other end of it but like when you're looking at what it actually looks like right i'm like no this is this is great But that happens all the time where like my mind is immediately erased when I'm done with something and you don't know until later. I mean, I'm not going to know what this conversation was when I leave here.
3: Hey, I'm going to pause things here briefly. This is Aaron, one of the co-hosts. I want to tell you about our sponsor, Casper. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Max, you have a Casper mattress, now.
2: I sleep on a Casper
3: mattress. You look, uh, well, you look pretty tired, but you have small <laughs> children, so now, sample size what. small. My small child, uh, very well rested. There you go. Max's, uh, Max's son likes uh, the Casper mattress. Why does he like it? Because it's got the supportive memory foam that creates an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine called it One of the best inventions of 2015. Max, how can we get a Casper mattress? Well, you've already got one, but how can someone else get one?
2: If someone wants to be like uh, my family and get themselves a Casper mattress, then go to casper.com slash longform. That is casper.com slash longform. I believe, I'm not even, uh, I'm just going off the dome here. Uh, I believe you get uh, 50 bucks off.
3: Yep, that's on top of the free shipping and returns to U.S. and Canada. Thank you very much, Casper. Again, casper.com slash longform. Thanks to them. Thanks also to our friends Squarespace, as always, Squarespace. You know, it's uh, the year progresses, Aaron. Yep, some of your New Year's resolutions
2: may not be uh, are you talking sure. about
3: the my New Year's resolution to get a bunch of old websites off my server <laughs> and return them to the custody of the rightful artists, bands, etc.? <laughs> yeah, how's that going? Terrible. I have uh, advice for you on how, how you can make that easier, Squarespace. Squarespace is a
2: all-in-one platform that makes it super easy to build. Hold up. Some of these people don't know any code. (laughs) They are going to be fine. With Squarespace, you don't need to know a lick of code. Everything works. It's all just drag and drop. If you have a problem, you won't. But if you do, uh, they got 24-7 award-winning customer support over there at Squarespace. How can I sign up? If you want a free trial, just go to squarespace.com and enter the code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off your first purchase, plus a free domain that's long form for 10% off your first
3: purchase. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website, Aaron. Thanks, Squarespace. Here's Max back with Ezra Edelman.
2: Well, I have one more interview question, and then we're going to talk about,
1: about your movie. I'd rather just talk about interviewing people.
2: Well, we can. I, I uh, as listeners to this podcast know I can talk about that okay. all day. But here's my question: Is like I still don't totally understand from like a tactical standpoint how you do these documentary interviews. And one of the things I was I, I was wondering as I was watching OJ was like, I assume that you have a place you want to go, and that I assume you have stuff you need them to comment about. Like I'm thinking about like the jurors in mm-hmm. OJ in particular. Like mm-hmm. you need them to comment on the decision. You need them to comment on what it was like to live in a hotel for nine months, but I wonder whether you have space in those interviews to like have them go in crazy directions and find totally unexpected stuff. And how often, how often are you plugging people into holes in the story you're trying to tell? And how often do those interviews take your story in like a completely different direction?
1: I think it's the latter is rarer than you would think, because you know, a lot of people say. What's the biggest surprise? What did you learn when you're like, "I don't know that I learned a whole lot. There weren't that many surprises in terms of what people told me, partly because there's a lot of stuff already in the record, partly because I already have a pretty fine structural plan of what I'm trying to do. And so where is someone gonna go off on a tangent? I'm gonna be like, I had no idea. <laughs> now, there were things. I mean, this is but this is where it gets back to, and this is the luxury of doing a film that is so vast in scope. My philosophy in making this film and films in general is is knowing that I want to truly incorporate these characters into this greater landscape of the story I'm telling. In this case, the city of Los Angeles and all of this world that preceded, you know, the trial in '94 and 95, I'm going back 30, 40 years. So every person I talk to, depending on who they are, I'm interested in what their life's like. I'm interested in how they fit into this landscape. Black, white, athlete, cop, celebrity, whatever. I wanna know their experience because that's all gonna inform the world I'm building simultaneous to you know, the specific events that they were a part of in the story. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm learning something in the moment. So if it's someone like Ron Shipp, who was a cop in the LAPD, a black cop, who befriended OJ and um, was close to him. And so for me, I'm interviewing him for those reasons I just said, he's representative of the chumminess that OJ enjoyed with the LAPD, and t- sort of to hit at the, you know, irony or the idea of that OJ was framed by the cops. Like, here's a guy who received preferential treatment from the cops over the course of decades, combined with the fact that, so, right, and then he testified against him, and he's a cop. There's a certain moral centered to that and so I want to understand that experience and I know he got sort of tore up on the stand so it's like that's why I'm there and there's enough to talk to him about but what I don't know when I sit down and talk to him and I'm at his house I don't know that he was a kid who played football growing up that he just sort of is five to ten years younger than OJ not even who idolized the guy who snuck into the UCLA USC game in 1967 which was the game that made OJ a star that you know within 6 months of that moment he was at a football banquet you know receiving an award as a teenager that oj was there and name checked him and you're starting to like oh there's a story here about celebrity and idolatry and this is this guy's hero and how he sort of figured out a way to form a relationship with this guy and I'm you know immediately my mind's going oh this is he represents this thread throughout the entire film in a way that I didn't know he would until I sat down and did that interview and that's where I just allow myself based on the time and what I'm doing to have the space for those things to wash over me during an interview where I'm like oh if I I didn't have to ask him about him at all right like his part of the story as far as I'm concerned could have started in the mid 80s when he was hanging out with OJ
2: in a way though like that story that you just told is kind of like it feels like a metaphor for the whole film in a way right where I've read a bunch of interviews with you since the movie came out and every single one of them is like why this story everyone knows this story and that's a totally fair question but what the film does is like it sort of says you think you know it
1: but you don't and Ron Ship has probably been interviewed what yeah, that's the thing. Ron Schip has been interviewed countless times.
2: But help me understand that. Like how do you get Ron Shipp to know that this one's gonna be different?
1: Well, he knows it's different from a standpoint of having talked to Tamara Rosenberg, who was our producer, who did a lot of the outreach to um to a lot of people in the film. He knows it's different that it's not simply about the trial. He knows it's, you know, it was being conceived as at that time a five hour film. He knows that we were gonna talk about all the context that led up to the trial. So he already knows from an ambition standpoint it's different. Then I think what happens, and this is what I can't explain to you, I don't know what happens with somebody. They've agreed to a contract, which is they're sitting down to talk about this. I have too much respect for the decision to do that, even though some people are motivated just by being on camera and being like, but like that's not something I would do lightly, if at all. And the thing that I have to offer in return is – Empathy, preparation, and lack of judgment. I'm not there to put him on the stand. I'm there to provide as comfortable an outlet for him to discuss his experiences as openly as possible. That we arrive at a point, however long in the course of an interview, and he breaks down and cries when talking about sort of his way of like looking at these crime scene photos when he sees Nicole, who he knows and had such love for, like I don't know that's going to happen, that just happens. So however we provided a space for him to feel comfortable enough to open up to do that, I mean honestly, there are too many of these moments that, it's documentary, it's unscripted. You can't, you don't know who's gonna say yes to you. You don't know how they're going to engage with you once they do. You don't know what footage exists in the world. You have an idea for a story you wanna tell. We are prepared. I do sort of meticulously write out a very, 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 long document that sort of is the result of a lot of reading and a lot of thinking and a lot of conversations. So I have a plan. If I sat and did all these interviews with people and it was like, okay, I'm interviewing you today, Max. Um, so how'd you, you know OJ? Yeah. How'd you know <laughs> OJ? Like you, and it's like, this would have taken me 15 years. Yeah. I mean, truly. And if or if it was like How long did it take you? Two. Can you tell me what that document looks like? <laughs> sure. It's a in this case it's probably a sixty page Word document. Um it's kind of written, I kinda of write it like a story to myself. Like if I sent it to you, it wouldn't be bullet points. It'd be like you're sitting down to read a story.
2: Like full on written out paragraphs.
1: Written out paragraphs. And I use I quote O. J from articles I would have read that were he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 1975 talking about this. So we're, I, it probably starts out as bullet points and thoughts and then I start filling it in around those things mm-hmm. and then I start writing it out in a way that if you, you're like, oh, I understand what this is. What's the first time someone else sees it? Mm. Depends on who they are and if they've worked with me and if I trust them and it's like on a need-to-know basis. <laughs> <laughs>
2: like how many people
1: total have oh, seen it? Hand, a hand, handful. Like once, they, once the people are working on it, like it's not like I'm giving that to people at ESPN. Like This is an internal document. This is like the people who are working on the film need to understand how I've been thinking about this and what I'm trying to do. So that's the producers of the film and the editors of the film.
2: I feel like you were starting to say that in this case, reality matched the document really closely.
1: No, I'm thinking that the reality of it far exceeded that. I mean, far exceeded it. Because there is a... The weird thing about this story is there is a glut of material that's on the record from everything to do with the, you know surrounding the trial. Yeah, it's everyone wrote the books. The most everyone, well-known story, right? So and so so there's like a glut of material over there. But relatively, there isn't that much on the record about OJ's biography. The other stuff is like me. It's also me starting the stab at what are the connections, um, in terms of what I'm looking at as the historical context to these events that took place in the '90s. And how am I interweaving a story that is O.J.'s narrative on the one hand and the world's narrative on the other? And I'm trying to already take these historical events and where O.J.'s life and trajectory fits in them. You know, There are certain things that got me into the film, which was, so I'm a sports nerd. I know everything about, I know O.J.'s story. I knew when he got to USC. I understood what that place was. I understood who he was. So, black kid coming from the projects in San Francisco arrives at Lily White School. That's conservative, apolitical, um, privileged. And on the other end of it, he is a guy who is turns into a commercial star. Now, that's juxtaposed on two levels, which is he's coming of age and coming into his being as a famous football player at a time where there was this movement of black athletes, and he went the other way. And so, I understood there already was this um, schism. Um, he chose. His individual ambition, his desire for fame and wealth, his desire to transcend race for his own personal well-being, which spit him out into a place. you know His being at USC in this place is really akin to where he ends up living in a mansion in right. Brentwood. That's the start of that acculturation in Los Angeles. There not only is that a juxtaposition to that movement of black athletes, but where USC is, a budding Watts, which burned in violence a year and a half before he got there, is very much a juxtaposition to the struggles of rank and file African Americans in this country that in this city that he was going to call home for the next four decades. That's the story I was telling. There is this narrative that was OJ butted up against the lives of other people who are of the same race of him.
2: When ESPN came to you and said we want to do a 5-hour OJ documentary and 5 hours eventually turned into 8 hours, but when they came to you and said that how much of that story that you just told did
1: you see? That sixty-five to 1965 to sixty-eight period in time was, I can't tell you exactly the percentage of instinctive versus learned, but it was probably more instinctive than it was learned. Mm-hmm. I know enough of that period, and, the, and I knew enough about O.J., and I knew enough. So. so
2: there wasn't a part of you when they came and said five hours on O.J. that was like...
1: <sighs> no, fact is they said five hours before they said O.J., Really? And I was really into the challenge of making a five hour film.
2: <laughs> they were just like, we want to go five? That was it. Well, it was like, no,
1: I just was like, oh, they were like, we want, we want to do something more ambitious. I went, I was like, oh, I, it's like a media, like that spoke to me. I want to do something more ambitious. We want to do a five hour film on OJ. And I was like, like everybody else, in terms of even now, it's like, I'm not watching eight hours on fucking OJ. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm good. I'd say the same thing, man. Yeah. Um, and I was like, what? what is there to say? What more could I say about this? I've lived through this. I didn't even follow the trial particularly, but, like, I was a sentient being, like, during, you know, I was awake, I was in college. Like, I I know the conversation. I understand the... And a lot of the stuff, to me, like, I just... Again, I understand it. I understood it on both sides. So it's like, do we need to... What more can I say? How'd they convince you? In the end, the same thing that got me into it, you know, is the same thing that convinced me because it was... If you're giving me this much time, I can explore these areas that I actually fundamentally am interested in. If you if I can tell a story about LA and go back to the 50s and 60s and tell a story about the community there and tell a story about the police and that and relationship between the black community and 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 the police department and explore OJ from a standpoint in a purer way of race and identity um, and celebrity and the creation of this icon and really spend time trying to further elucidate him as a character in a way that he's been given short drift or were completely sort of disregarded after the murders. I had like everyone else. I don't know what I didn't know what happened after the trial. I knew he was in jail for robbery. That's like I like it's almost like that. I know you're in jail for this bullshit right. I knew nothing else about. So all I know is that I have the time to tell that story. What happened after. That's what got me in. Everything before the murders, everything after the trial.
2: I got to tell you, man, it comes through in the film. Like, those are the parts that I will not forget. That last chapter is so dark.
1: And I'd forgotten. I'd either forgotten or never known, you know? You don't, because also, why would you want to? At a certain point, it's like, we all needed to check out. Yeah. And the the amazing thing is, for this long-standing conversation about, did he do it or not do it, which I couldn't have given less of a shit about. Do you still not care about that? I, still, I I have an opinion about it. I don't care about it. But it's like, it's not what it's about. And so for me, what I was going to say is that like, everyone's so fixated on the details of what happened on June 12, 1994. I'm like, just look at how he spent the fucking, his years afterwards. That says a lot. <laughs> Let alone like how he sort of like, again, there's a threshold I, I understood I needed to cross as far as trying to explain him as a person that I think informed how I saw that crime and how I wanted to portray it in the movie more so than me trying to come up with any other evidence that was going to to sort of change people's minds in that way
2: I'm going to take a uh, uh, guess as to what that read of yours was on him as a person which was this um, haunting and diabolical charm that he had and and his uh, his ability uh, to turn that on and turn it off that's a thing that you keep coming back to over and over and over again. And I'm sorry to keep harping on this like, how much did you learn doing it, and how much of yeah. it just like hewed to that original idea and document, but that one like.
1: That's learned. That's learned by the way, not through even specific anecdotes that you get from talking to one person who's close to him. That is, that comes with the reinforcement of voices. And over and over and over again people There's, say. Right, so that's the other thing where there is a process to this that you need to go through Where um, facts are facts, you know, but there is a truth that, you know, is elusive and there's no such thing as truth. But you are that this is why this is a journalistic exercise, because you're going through and talking to these people who spend all this time around him. And you are not only building up this case for yourself in terms of you have to decide what you think of this person. You're going to portray this person for the world to absorb. And it has to be true to the experiences of these people that you're talking to and you have to have a great enough cross-section of people who spent time around him, who played with him. That's why, by the way, I wasn't out to demonize him. The easy thing in what so many people do when they've done things about OJ, it's like he ceased to be a human being after that murder trial. He was, this, he was either a symbol or he was you know, evil incarnate or maybe he was a hero who beat the system. He wasn't a fucking person. <laughs> so it's like, I, if nothing else, I was like, can we restore this man's humanity? good and for ill.
2: When did that idea of him, when did that uh, concept
1: of him become real to you? I mean, I think it just becomes increasingly real. I mean, I don't, I've never met the man. And I'm very sort of, like, humble and respectful of the fact that, like, I you know, you put something out there about a person who I've never met so I don't have that even ability to have sat across from him like I'm sitting across from you right now. And I don't know you very well, but I can, you learn a lot from You know, I mean, well, that's the sort of actually the irony or the funny thing about what I'm about to say is that and it's in the film talking to his manager at the end. He's, you know, we're talking about the idea if I had got a chance to interview him or meet him. And he was like, oh, you'll like him. And I was like, "Mm, pretty sure. I I don't know about this. But that's what the last that's part of. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie is that scene with Wendy Williams, Oh man. Where you 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 see it happening in real time?
2: It's a, it's a radio interview with Wendy Williams, and it starts, and she is like visibly, physically uncomfortable to be
1: sitting next to him. And she's like, uh, "It's interesting to have you here." Yeah. And she's like, "I don't know how I feel about this." And she asks him about so that you know, asks about the events in 1994, or the trial, like. He's like, oh, what what is that to say?" And he's like, "We've talked, you know, oh, because you were found not guilty because I was not guilty. I was found not guilty." And he just sort of and then you see this charm that starts to take over this dynamic that by the end of the scene, she's not only inviting him to a party, but she's hugging him. And like Mike jo- <laughs> jokingly being like, "Oh no, he's hugging." You know, like yeah. but like you see the man at work. I mean, she literally
2: says like, "I hate to say this, but you are damn good-looking, yeah, O'J."
1: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, no, she go, and she also says, you did it to me. Damn you, OJ, I like you. Damn you, OJ. You know, you're like, and you're just like, oh my God. There it is in real time. There it is in real time. And by the way, that's why also this is all complicated. That guy's not evil incarnate. Now, I don't know what it's like if you spent more time around him. I don't know when you'd get to see a different side of him. I don't know when that would sort of, you know less interesting to you that superficial way of him charming you I don't know you sent him an email right mm-hmm. I didn't know you could get email in prison It's something called J. they have a J mail system <laughs> it's like very and by the way there's a specific amount of characters that you can sort of like so it's like up to a certain point what'd your email say in essence I reached out to him towards the end of us you know shooting
2: yeah but I mean like like I wasn't like, going, did you say like Dear mr Simpson
1: it was oh it was it was a hundred percent respectful, of course, and um it was I'm doing this movie i th- I mean i I knew he knew about it, and I said, this is what it is in concept, sort of kind of like I would do with anybody. We're making this you know long film, and it's inclusive not just of of the story of a murder and a trial, but about, and it was impersonal in that way, and it was about, but it's about your life, and it's about every, all the events and connects, and so he gets the same spiel, so he understands it's not. And I say, I've interviewed this many people. I'm not, gonna, I'm not hiding anything. Um, I basically felt like I needed to do my homework and to learn as much as I could about the story and about you before I engaged you personally, and I've reached that point. And respectfully, if you'd be willing to participate and do an interview, be it for five minutes or five hours or five days, I would love for you to be a part of it and crickets
2: were you uh nervous at all when you hit send in jmail
1: no I was too far along in the process I I also knew that he wasn't going to say yes so
2: you didn't think there was any chance
1: no why because he's not done an interview since he's been in prison I'm pretty sure he wasn't going to break his silence for me I don't know if he was going to break his silence. It wouldn't be a bad place to do it. You know how many opportunities that guy has to talk.
2: I'm sure. He, I'm saying, but, he could, he could. but this is. I mean, I wonder whether w- what it's like for him to know that for everything that has been done, ESPN has decided to spend eight hours on this story.
1: I, I, I won't even. I have my. I won't even venture. Do you think he watched it? I don't know. I know he has cable TV in his cell. (laughs) I know that ESPN got a note from, I probably shouldn't say this, but got a note from the prison saying something in effect of, can you let us know the next time you plan to broadcast this because we want to talk to the local cable system to basically shut off ESPN. Really? So whether it was he watching it or people in the prison the sense I get I don't know truly but the sense I get is that they want him to and there's an expectation for him to be a regular inmate and to not sort of trade on his fame and so that's why he hasn't done interviews and you know he wants to get out of prison so I don't know again I don't know for a fact this is the sense I get um so I think the bigger question is not if he watched it but what did he think of it <laughs> I'm sure
2: you're super comfortable just uh, conjecturing on that topic
1: what I would like to think is that that we took pains and time to not just talk about a crime that he was implicated in and a trial that he was enmeshed in, but also to show people who he once was in his all his glory and his greatness and his beauty, that that guy was absorbed and seen again by the world, and I hope that he would have appreciated that.
2: Where did you guys find all that tape?
1: A lot of places.
2: I'm sure. Myriad it, sources. Help me understand, I have no concept of what it's like to go and find that amount of new archival footage.
1: It is a beyond a uh, massive exercise, and that's where, so first of all, the first person I called when I knew I was doing this to sort of get help was Caroline Waterlow, who's a producer Who's worked on a range of documentaries, extremely talented, who I'd worked with in some capacity a couple of times, but never directly on a film. Like, she was my producer. Like, she exists in this rarefied space of being one of, I want to say, like, there's like a little network of people. That's why there's like a listserv of like archival producers. And she's like, so it's like, a, if not a handful, like 10 to 15 women, men who do this, who are, this is what they do. So I was hiring her to just be the, you know, the compliment to me as the director telling the story, and she was going to be basically in charge of everything and, you know, engineering the, you know us through this process. Uh, so not only does she have this incredibly, you know, this vast amount of experience in archival research, she wasn't going to be able to do that by herself. That was like her job transcended that specific job. So then she found a woman named Nina Christick, who is also an incredible archival documentary. And I mean, like, and Nina... I mean, she's a fucking machine,
2: but that's like detective work on some level there's right?
1: oh, it's a lot of detective work. I mean, I was saying to someone last night, i don't I, I normally wouldn't say this, but <laughs> so we the film won a duPont
2: congratulations thanks
1: and um which is a journalism award, and so we were at this awards event last night at Columbia. And it's incredible to, again, get this honor. Like we're filmmakers and documentary filmmakers and storytellers, so to be honored with this sort of highest honor of broadcast journalism is a, um, and they do honor documentary films, so it wasn't like an outlier in that way, but a lot of the other things that were honored, for, that people were being honored for, were these incredible investigative stories and or harrowing ways of exposing things you know, in, throughout the world. And you just kind of feel like, what the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> it's like, it's like, don't. Get, I'm not trying to delegitimize or minimize what we did, but it's just like, I don't know. We tried to tell a good story, um, but I guess when I was talking, and I was on stage with them, with with Caroline and Nina and our other producer Tamara Rosenberg, and it's like, well, it kind of is, like being a investigative journalist in the sense that we're finding people's like looking up people in databases, like trying to access people who we just have a name. Like we have to find them. We have to track them down and figure out a way to, to, to get them on the phone, find phone numbers that shouldn't exist or don't exist to just figure out a way to access them. So ultimately we can talk to them. So maybe they can be in this movie. So that's one aspect of, but the other aspect to your point is that the amount of footage that has to be called through, located, sourced, um, it's astounding. I mean, we probably were working with 800 hours of footage ultimately for the film that we made. 600 hours or so where that footage was archival footage. And Nina and Caroline essentially are taking both a micro and a macro approach, which is, you know, from the get-go, it's like, Nina, it's like, Nina, you have to find every single interview that OJ's ever done. Because OJ's a character in this film. That's germane to what I'm trying to do. But, like, he's not in the film. So we need – his character needs to be – so every interview that we can find. So it's like that's one thing. Or I could general, like, oh, we're telling this narrative about the LAPD, and then we're going to include the history of the LAPD. So we have to find all this footage of that combined with, oh, we know we're talking about this fraught dynamic. So can we find every example of footage where there might be a cop, you know, sort of in a – you know, it's like you're there's a macro – then there's the – the specificity of certain things, which is like, I'm telling a story about this, so f- we have to figure out a way to convey this visually in the film. If it's the you know, run in the UCLA-USC game, it's like, I know that that exists. I'm not worried right. about that. That's more like, where is it gonna come from? What's the best quality of footage that we can get? Yada, yada, yada. If it's, I mean, there's some footage that you didn't know existed. That's the other thing about the crapshoot. You don't know who's gonna talk to you, but you're like, I didn't know there was footage of OJ coming back to his house after the verdict. You're like, you know, what the, f- how, how, what? So there's a lot of things that, like, again, the Wendy Williams footage, that came from his manager, you know, who I didn't know existed before we started doing this, and this guy shot hundreds of hours of footage of O.J. That's where you a- got the flag thing, too. No, right? the flag thing came from his agent, Mike Cameron. Oh, right, right, right. But even in these are, all per- these are all personal sources that all have to do with very specific, by the way, um, relationship building things that these people, you know, like, it's hard, and that's what the film is. It's a it's a collection of these things. So so that's why when you look back and you go, how did this all work? Because any of these one thing, one person, one they all are necessary to me in terms of the film that was done. And you can think you interviewed seventy two people. What if this one person? i can make, I can give you like ten of those people. What if that person weren't in it? It's a different film.
2: Does this feel like it all like came together? Does it feel in, in, like something special w- happened
1: to you now? Not then. <laughs> How did it feel then? <laughs> Battle. <laughs> always, there's always so much stuff that was happening concurrent to what was happening. So it's almost like the greatest blessing about this was as someone who is rather neurotic and has a very healthy or unhealthy amount of anxiety as I'm going through the world and dealing with things, there was too many things that were happening at once for me to be too fixated on anything to like be too anxiety-ridden about it because there's something else to be done you have three editors working and you're not done shooting and you're trying to do A, B, and C and put the thing together and if someone's not saying yes to you responding to you or eventually you're like, okay, well, I'm filing that away for now. We will come back to that later. You
2: were able to, like, compartmentalize your anxiety.
1: There was always something for my anxiety to focus more intensely <laughs> on. <laughs> I mean look it's, it's a terrible thing and I don't want to sound like look I love what I do and I love the challenge of what we were able to do and I, I, I couldn't be more proud of what we were able to manage and I say that because it's like every person who worked on this film if not morphed to my own level of obsessiveness they all were so individually um, proactive and passionate in how they went about making this movie in a way that would have been impossible if they had not been that way and you can't for this is a work ethic and this is a professionalism and this is a like I don't want to say that's uncommon but it's uncommon <laughs> and so on the other end of it I feel like yes it all came together in a very special meaningful way because there are so many things about this film and so much dedication that had to be you know sort of offered to every single thing to get done you know if we did 72 interviews I feel like
2: how many of those seventy-two are in the movie? Sixty-six.
1: Sixty-six.
2: What didn't make it?
1: Um, I interviewed Chris Nowinski, who is the um, concussion expert, the head trauma expert, who has sort of helped, works with at, at MIT. Yeah, with the, uh, and examining. I was kind of surprised springs. that
2: CT, didn't show up at all, but I guess maybe that's just too.
1: I can tell you. I mean, I explored it. So I interviewed him, and I did. CT is the. Uh, Concussion-related it, disease. Come on, that, say, come on, tell me what it stands for. I have no idea what it stands for. Yeah, I, I, I do, but I'm going to butcher it. So I'm gonna...
2: <laughs> It's the, uh, it is the brain disease that that all of these um, football players have, have been found to have, uh, the result of multiple concussions. Right, and
1: you you can only know if you have CT after you have passed away. So these former athletes, not just football players, hockey players, and boxers, have had their brains examined after they've passed away, and so these guys at MIT sort of. There's a brain bank, and so they solicit these people who have often have um, experienced erratic behavior, and their families have been sort of very struck by knowing, like, this isn't the person that, you know. Right. So, they've donated their brains, and a lot of people have found to have this disease. Now, the exact correlation between this disease and these, this erratic, oftentimes violent behavior, there's no one-to-one, even though it is kind of a one-to-one. So I went and interviewed Chris Nowinski. Um, I interviewed Robert Hyzenga, who was actually O.J.'s the doctor. He was the former Raiders team doctor. And he was the, the doctor that Robert Shapiro hired to examine O.J. the week of the murders, examine the cuts in his hands. But those two people were in a scene that we cut about O.J. having CTE.
2: Why did you cut that scene?
1: Um, because – so we had this scene, and it was going to be in part five, and it was basically trying to sort of – in some ways ask the question I mean again I feel like there's a lot of questions that I ask in the movie I'm searching for you know trying to explain you know what this dynamic was with this person but also with this uh, this trial um, narratively would I have loved to have paid off all of that time I showed you seeing him play football to be like and this actually had a real cause to him, his you know change in character yes having said that I also thought it was a cop out in the end I think that to explain and reduce his violent behavior and abuse towards his wife and allegations that he abused his first wife um, to a brain injury suffered playing football, no. And I thought that was irresponsible.
2: Well, it's also, you know, you've done this eight-hour examination of the man and his life, and nothing in that movie is... Uh, circumspect right the whole point is like this is one of the most conspiracy laden stories in American history and you my understanding of your film is you were trying to remove the conspiracy from it
1: I'm just like here it is here's the guy you tell me now that's the thing I'm gonna force you to live with who he was and so for everyone who could get caught up in the politics of the moment which is real and true and the emotions of the moment and things that had to do with them personally more than the thing itself. I think i it's like part of the philosophy was like I, I watch this.
2: You were saying before that like you went into this with questions. What was left unanswered for you?
1: There's plenty of questions that are unanswered. I don't know that I – but I don't know that I fixate on them. There wasn't – I actually do feel strange about this. When you – you you spent this much time working on something and you were so passionate and dedicated and sort of putting this together and so were all these people who worked alongside me. And the way that we worked and the way that I worked, it's almost like akin to something that was like this obsessive thing that was in my brain before I started working on it. I didn't think about O.J. Simpson. I didn't care about O.J. Simpson. And so on the other end, to be like, what are these questions that, you, that were left lingering? I'm like... Didn't have them. Didn't have them.
2: Do you feel satisfied? <laughs>
1: Fulfilled. I don't know that I'm ever satisfied.
2: What'd you learn about America?
1: Beyond that, it's a fucked up place. But I already knew that. Yeah. I think I learned that it was more fucked up than I realized. And not so far as the like. So what's interesting about people's responses to the film? they're the amount of people who said I had no idea. You're like, really? Because it's so- they're saying I had no
2: idea America was fucked up.
1: No, no, I had no idea about that history, about that context. Now I understand why people had the perspective they had during the trial. I understand why people, black people, responded that way to the verdict. I didn't understand it before. And in some ways, that was a purpose. That was actually an operating principle as far as why I was making this movie and why I, I did the movie the way I did it as sort of a primer from an education standpoint. But I think there's something depressing in that at the same time, Mm -hmm. which is this is something that was, for me, well, I mean, it was understood.
2: So it's almost like those reactions like confirmed your assumptions?
1: A little bit. And so it's like I also apparently had a sense enough that that was the case. But also I knew that was the case because look at the actual case look at what white people saw and what black people saw look at how angry white people were when black people were happy and you're like have some fucking empathy man like do you know what's been happening for 400 years for 40 years for it's like jesus man it's like it's not about that and i'm not saying that's right but on the flip side by the way it's like everything i already said to you about like look at oj for a few hours live with this guy What did you feel when that verdict happened? I remember what I felt. I was not upset. I was pulling for the greater sense of justice or against the injustice that had consistently been happening to African-Americans in our criminal justice system. That's sort of how I was. but. I think I want all those people who sort of celebrated that in a very real emotional way and that was real and that was earned and that was legitimate to also look at this and be like, really? Did I, I don't know that I should have reacted that way. And I think you can look at the fact that there is now a a study that's come out, like a predominant, uh, the majority of African Americans now believe he's guilty. That has to do with evidence that can't, you know, the civil trial and sort of again how he lived his life and where he is now. I'm sure all these things had bearings on that fact. But we we're this is that's the other thing. It's like this was a moment. This was a specific moment in a place in a time.
2: Well, it's also, I mean, watching the film. It doesn't. It didn't feel to me like it mattered very much. Whether or not he was guilty.
1: There, yes, this was. I mean, look. When Marsha Clark in the film says it was so much bigger than us, true. I also think that's a way of sloughing off a little bit of responsibility, you know? Sure. But, like, it's also true. You can make an argument that there was no better time to be accused as a black celebrity of murder than in Los Angeles in 1994. Like, it was a perfect storm, you know? And, like, for all the shit they were talking about in the world, and now I'm bringing it up about what happened in the election, it's like, There's not one explanation. It's a perfect storm of shit because it makes no fucking sense. Yeah,
2: and in this moment that we are currently living in, the human desire to be able to find one thing to hang the narrative on, one story that lets it make sense is so strong. And it feels so clear to me that the person who is in the White House is there because a million different things happened.
1: Correct, and the fact is, you're smart enough to, even in this moment in time, to parse a half million of those things. But in terms of how we absorb it, and how we think about it, and how we talk about it, we're still just like, it's this, it's this, it's this. And so in some ways there is an analogousness to that time, because these things were there, it was apparent. There are all these factors that went into this. I think people could have thought, but you, you need that explanation or you're so fixated on this one thing in the middle. Did he do it? So in, in this way, it's like, wait, yeah, we, we have the brains and the smarts to like, we can't, you know, sort of chart a course to what the beginning of what all these disparate factors were. But there are enough things that if we sat down and started talking about how to explore it, like, I think we can say, no, there is a better way of looking at this. And it's complicated. And we all ha- have to take some personal ownership over it, though it also doesn't have anything to do with us. I mean, but that's, and that's a little bit of the lesson in this. Like, we created this character.
2: And watching it in this context, it made me think a lot about the nature of celebrity in America.
1: Yes. And that's where, when I say what I learned is that America is even more fucked up than I previously thought, it's that the superficiality of it, the sort of how we willingly are seduced by these these shiny people and these shiny things. And again, when I've looked at O.J.'s trajectory, and this wasn't Operating Prince, this wasn't, it's like that schism, right? Of Jim Brown, Ali, Arthur Ashe, Bill Russell, these people over here in 1967. I'm
2: not black, I'm O.J.
1: I'm not black, I'm O.J. I go over here, I wanna be on commercials, I'm gonna be. And you chart that trajectory, that decline culturally. He was the most superficial guy that came to rise in the most substantial of times, and we have fallen in line with his superficiality over the past 50 years. That's what O.J. wrought on our culture. In some ways, it's like, it's fucking sad. Can we talk about Larry Bird?
2: I could talk about Larry Bird for a long time, (laughs) but I want to talk a little bit about you. Uh, I know you don't like talking about yourself, but I have some actual personal questions. Okay. What have you learned about yourself since it came out? It came out in June, and we're now at the end of January. I'm talking to you, uh, what, 48 hours after you got nominated for an Oscar? What What
1: uh, have these seven months been like for you? Really strange. Really strange, I can't lie. I mean, I've certainly gotten more attention than I desire or want. i certainly talked about O.J. more than I've desired or wanted to. The nice thing about it, but also the true thing about it is... Taking something on and doing something that was so immersive, obsessive, difficult, but pure. Pure in the idea of like, this is what I'm doing all the time. This is what I'm thinking about. I don't know how it's going to work out. It was so, again, focused on just getting the thing made and done that on the other end of it, it's like, what? <laughs> what happened? people people watch this or people engage with him people it's like holy shit and that but that's great because the only way for it to have worked out is if there was never any thought given to that before and so the strangeness comes from having something become I mean culturally relevant when you're just trying to tell a good story and that's it's weird it's weird being sort of not personally, but just having something you did be the object of this much um, conversation. But it's you, too. I mean, like, people want to talk to you. Yeah, that's weird. Why do they want to talk to me, Max?
2: You're a good talker.
1: I'm not Thoughtful a good talker. Man. It's nice of you to say. Um, I, yeah, it's it's strange, and I have, a, honestly, I, have a, I don't know that I've worked out the proper balance between being proud of a film i made so i'm happy to go talk to people about it versus can i just stay home and be quiet and not talk to people but on
2: some level if like you know the arduous work of talking to people is giving acceptance speeches at the dupont awards
1: yeah as, as not, talking th- to people goes don't don't get me don't get me wrong and i and i know that i'm actually very fearful of this all the time because you know this has been great objectively, like beyond my wildest dreams as far as people's response to it, the world's response to it, and as much as I am uncomfortable with it, the intention I've gotten because of it. Um, but it's also hard, and I'm I'm an introverted person who doesn't always mix well with others socially, and there's a lot of socialness <laughs> that comes from all this stuff. And so, as proud as I am of every place I get to go, of the few awards we've been fortunate enough to win, There's also an extreme amount of anxiety that comes with that at the same time. And as much as I would love and I'm proud to and want to go up on stage, it's also painful in terms of trying to figure out something to say and standing in front of a group of people that like, you know, many of whom many times you're looking down and you're like, I can't believe the people in the room that I'm looking at right now. And, like, why, like, and it's so that's it's a there's a constant sort of out of body experience. I've been using the word dysmorphia a lot about what goes on in my mind versus what the world sees in me or in the film. You're know, like, I'm no different than the guy who did the, tried to do the thing two years ago, you know? And so on the other end of it, it's like it's just a different skin. It's getting easier. It is getting easier. Certain things are easier. I, that, but that's like anything, that's practice being in environments that you're not used to being in, having to do things you're not used to doing, that's practice. So the anxiety is less, the comfort's more. So in that way, yeah. I now have more, co- I don't have confidence in anything I'm doing, but I have more confidence based on having just gone through a process of doing something I didn't know how to do and then it all worked out. Like I, f- I, f- I I'll start with I, and then we we figured it out. So I had this task that like became, we had this task, all of these people are really good at what they did. And we figured the thing out in real time. So that gives me a baseline confidence. Maybe I can take on something that I don't know how to do, be it in subject matter, be it in form, and maybe it'll be okay. Maybe I'm smart enough, thoughtful enough, talented enough to figure it out. Whereas before I might look at something and go, well that's a bridge too far that's not something that like i'm allowed to do or i can do because i don't know i didn't go to school to do that but then you go like i didn't go to school to do any of this i just ended up where i where i am which is sitting across from you max so it's (laughs) like there is there is some comfort in that which is the validation of whatever path that you've been on feels like you've arrived at a place and it's been okay the path that you've chosen and we all work, you know, the world works in strange ways and we all sort of get to where we're going at our own speed and at our own pace. And maybe I will feel a little bit better about trying things and taking things on.
2: I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. Thank you. Even if it's just a uh, documentary about
1: Larry Bird it's blowing his lawn. It's definitely going to be the JFK assassination. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Ezra, thank you for doing this Thank you,
2: Max Thanks for listening to Longform I'm Max Linsky My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff Our editor this week was Janelle Piper Our intern is Courtney Carroll Thanks to them Thanks so much to Ezra Edelman for coming in His film is O.J. Made in America I suggest you watch it Uh, That was really fun I could talk to that guy forever Thanks also, of course, to our sponsors, Squarespace, Casper, our old friends at MailChimp, and our new friends at the podcast, Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape. It's a good show. You should check it out. Right now they got something up there from Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, which is so creepy, I'm not even going to tell you about it. Just go listen. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, the Wondery app on Android, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. We'll see you next week.